Welcome to another edition of the It's Cavalier podcast. As always, it's your boy Mac. Joining me today in place of my co-host Corey Walsh is Evan Damerel of Write Down Euclid. Evan, thanks for coming back on the show. How you doing, man? I'm good. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing well. It's Friday. I mean, there's not much going on in the uh, Cavs, uh, you know, in regards to anything Cavs related. So things I'm trying to knock to- as quietly as possible on my desk, but I'm knocking on wood that it's just a quiet weekend for everyone. That is the hope, man. I mean, it just we're in the point of the offseason. Obviously, the finals just ended. We saw Denver win it. Um, couldn't be happier for them. But, you know, in regards to the Cavs, this is the quietest time of this mm-hmm. season. Uh, maybe not on Cavs Twitter, but uh, definitely <laughs> uh, the team itself. So with that being said, I mean, coming into the 2022-23 season, there was a lot of expectations on the mm-hmm. squad real expectations after the trade for donovan mitchell when you're taking into account not just this postseason because i think we could all say it was a bit of a disappointment mm-hmm. when you're factoring in the regular season as well do you consider this season an overall success yeah i just from the optics of the fact that they made the postseason uh considering how last year went when they Injuries did play a part in the uh, play-in flameout, and I think drawing the Brooklyn Nets with Kyrie and KD is no easy task either. But regardless, um, just the fact that they made the postseason, I consider that a success just as a little check mark. Um, From the outside, like you said, there's a lot of just outside expectations, but internally, the Cavs maintain the same course all throughout this year. Uh, the tone changed a little bit when they clinched that playoff berth. I think Donovan Mitchell is the one who said, like, no, this is always the expectation for us, but we didn't want to put that pressure out there publicly just so we didn't kind of just shoot ourselves in the foot or, you know, just foot and mouth scenario. But the the expectation was never like championship or bust, despite maybe a really, really strong start to the regular season and just a lot of individual accolades for all these players. I mean, Donovan Mitchell included. It's all NBA honors. It's the all-star starter, which it's still crazy for me to think that that's the first time he started in an all-star game. But if you just look through the lens of that, yeah, it's like you said, recency bias makes it really easy to crystallize the season as a failure. I think if you look at this, the optics of how strong they were heading into the postseason, yeah, yeah it's maybe slightly below passing if you want to look at it from that lens, but there's a lot of momentum and a lot of things that just went right for the Cavs. Um, I, I was always of the mindset, even before they acquired Donovan Mitchell, like, okay, my expectation is for them to make the playoffs this year, just because they really took a dramatic leap when they drafted Evan Mobley, who was the catalyst for them on, especially just the defensive side of the ball. And, now I'm like, okay, they need to make the postseason and I need to have a clear understanding of what does and doesn't work for this team come playoff time because the playoffs are a completely different beast than the regular season. And there's a lot of adjustments, game planning and things like that. And you could tell Tom Thibodeau outcoached J.B. Bakerstaff and exploited a lot of Cleveland's weaknesses. And the Cavs just really didn't have a counterpunch to what New York had to throw at them. But I, I know it's probably a cop out. I think just, you know, being so far removed from this season ending the way it did i was stunned that the Cavs kind of laid down and seemingly gave up in game five and just kind of surrendered home court to new york and just you know got on vacation a little earlier than expected but 
it's it's um I consider it a successful year overall. And now I'm just now I'm just really curious because there's a lot of directions this team could go in and they could pursue veterans, they could kind of remain the course and like focus on development. But they are incredibly young. Evan Mobley's super young. I know Jared Allen is in his prime, Donovan Mitchell is entering his prime, Darius Garland is still relatively young too. Like there's a lot of room for improvement and growth. I'm just curious to see what does this front office do to maximize the potential of a pretty rare circumstance where you have four star level players right now on your roster and the new CBA kind of discourages things like that. And the way just how the NBA is trying to create parity discourages that like the caps could kind of see some momentum here and say like, okay, we have enough star power to get us there. We just need to support that star power come postseason time so that we're not gassing them out um, every single night. Do you think the way that things ended in the postseason kind of altered the mindset there though? I like, what the timeline is and like what future moves would be dictated. Um, Because I'm thinking that, I mean, obviously, you know, these are young guys and we know that Mm -hmm. we have seen people taking the route of patience a la Denver, you know, they, they gave them a large runway. Mike Malone, I believe the head coach there for eight seasons and they rode out the timeline uh, on Nikola Jokic's dime. And I I'm not going to say we're quite in that same scenario, but I mm-hmm. mean, you could definitely see a similar circumstance play out along Evan Mobley's, you know, his rise. So, do you think the way that we were outplayed, out hustled, uh, specifically with Jared Allen and whatnot, do you think that kind of altered the front office's uh, approach to this offseason? At least, well, to be fair to the Cavs, um, they are a very hard to read organization. Kobe Altman is a guy who operates in the shadows more often than not. He doesn't really speak to the media. I think it's two, maybe three times a year. It's usually the beginning of the season, the end of the season, and maybe midway into the year if they make like a big trade or something like that. So, and ditto for Mike Ganzi, who I don't think we heard from once this season from the meet in the, in the lens of the media. But I, I think it's fair to maybe look at this team and say, okay, we made some noise in the Eastern Conference. We are an up-and-coming team with a lot of young players. Laurie Markkinen was a bit of a revelation, and then he continued that success with the Jazz. So great for him. I, I was glad to say I was wrong, and it just wasn't like, you know, a new situation, just, you know, being like the fourth or fifth banana on that offense. Or, or either way. Um, so they go out and get Donovan Mitchell because this is a front office that's very opportunistic. They like I said, operate in the shadows, like the Jared Allen acquisition. It, it came out after the fact that this is a player that the Cavs have kind of always cir- had circled on their wish list, and they would circle back to Brooklyn and ask, like, oh, could we work the margins on the trade? And then they remain opportunistic to acquire these guys. And the same thing can be said for Donovan Mitchell, too. Like, you see New York, and I think a lot of us, Mitchell included, thought he was going to be a New York Nick uh, last summer. And then Cleveland steps in because the Knicks kind of keep dragging out this process a little bit. And Cleveland's like, okay, we can get this deal done really quick. And Danny Ainge, maybe despite New York as well, just you know, from his time at the Celtics or the fact that like Ainge and Altman do have a working relationship with one another just after like the Kyrie Irving trade many moons ago. Um, like That helped as well, per- perhaps. But when you look at the postseason, I think it's fair to question – how tough this Cavs team is because they certainly talk the talk all regular season long. Like they talk about how they're the number one defensive team and like, yeah, the metrics and analytics and everything in between say that they were fairly elite on the defensive side of the ball. And at least in the first round, they were a pretty good defensive team considering how well they managed New York's offensive attack to an extent. But 
like you said, Mitchell Robinson, especially was just like a catalyst in dismantling Cleveland's game plan. And that's always kind of been the rep on Jared Allen too, is if you out hustle him a little bit, or if you get a little rough with him, he shies away from the pressure and he kind of crumples under it. And Evan Mobley clearly looked overwhelmed too. I think Julius Randall, even though he was on a bum ankle was still super effective, especially with his just floor spacing. Um, there's a lot of questionable decisions. I think the coaching staff made, whether it's subbing out Isaac Okoro for Karis Levert in the starting lineup or playing Ricky Rubio in some crucial possessions at times because New York was killing the Cavs when Rubio was on the floor or Josh Hart, I think just kind of being the X factor in general for both teams. Like he gave a spark to the Knicks that they desperately needed in game one to kind of steal a lot of Cleveland's momentum and just the overall like vibe heading into this postseason. And then Hart just continued to be a thorn in their side where he plays like a big man at the guard spot and where he just has a nose for offensive rebounds and it's tricky because New York coming into the series was the number one of the top rebounding teams Cleveland surprisingly despite the fact that they play two seven footers was middle of the pack to slightly below average in terms of rebounding so I think the battle was going to be decided on the glass I didn't think it would be this dramatic at times I can't even remember the one statistic where the Knicks just had every second chance opportunity they wanted and they showed signs of life in game two and you're like, okay, they found some things that work. It's going to be really hard in the garden for game three, but if they have this confidence with them, they can roll with it. But the garden was hot. It rattled them clearly and it just fell apart at the wayside. And I think it's fair to answer your question again. Like is Jared Allen that dude? Um, We'll see. He said a lot of the right things in his exit interview. I'm very curious on how this team kind of develops not just physically, but mentally as well. Like this is this is a pretty sour taste because it, you did get worked in five games and pretty much embarrassed on your home court multiple times by New York. And it's more of a question now, like, hey, JB, Kobe Altman stuck his neck out for you and said, like, there's not going to be no sweeping changes. Um, it's been confirmed off the record anonymously as well by multiple people that, like, Bakerstaff's job is safe for this offseason. But I do wonder, like, is his seat a little warmer heading into next year? Because if the Cavs keep doing this, where like they start out super strong, they have a lot of strong statistics in the regular season, they're just going to become the Peyton Manning Indianapolis Colts, where they put up all these otherworldly numbers or crazy statistics or kind of break records and all these things. But then none of it matters because as soon as you hit the postseason, you flame out. And to go back to the last question, like I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt just because it's their first time making the postseason without LeBron in forever and the first time since LeBron left in 2018. But going forward, like you can't just hang your hat on regular season success because now like the expectation is you're going to make the playoffs consistently with Donovan Mitchell and the squad you've have assembled. You got to get further than winning one game in the first round. And even that one win kind of felt like it was everything the Cavs had. I think that's fair to say. I mean, you want to be able to continuously elevate yourself. We've seen Mm -hmm. JB, at least in the regular season, um, you know, when he was handed the job five and six towards the end of the, uh, the first season, Uh, I want to say 22 wins, second season, 44, and then this season, 51 wins. So at least during the regular season, there has been substantial growth in that regard that kind of lines up with the added uh, firepower that you've gotten with Ed, with drafting Evan Mobley and then trading for Donovan mm-hmm. Mitchell. So you have seen at least some success in the regular season, but man, I do think the seat is hot uh, heading into next season. And I think to, at least in my opinion, you know, obviously, like you said, we, we don't hear this stuff. They're, they're quite tight lipped on it. Um, but at least in my estimation, I think this is a make or break season. 
for Jake mm-hmm. Bickerstaff. Um, I, I, th- I think it has to be that way. It has to be viewed that way, especially when you're trying to figure out where you are standing with Donovan Mitchell in regards to him mm-hmm. and his tenure in Cleveland. And speaking of Donovan Mitchell, I mean, man, I, I was not shy about my opinions about that trade. I was feeling like, uh, you know, it was a lot to give up. And Colin Sexton had he had been healthy with the, the addition of Ochai Abaji and, you know, Larry Markkinen, um, I don't believe he would have had the same type of breakout here because he, not the same role, not the same opportunities, not the same pace, just completely different role. Um, I did feel that the Cavs would have made the playoffs this season with a healthy Colin Sexton and whatnot, but I cannot lie. I can't sit up here and lie and say I was not genuinely blown away by Donovan Mitchell. I, th- I feel like he gave us one of the most exciting seasons in Cavs history. So I just have to ask you, do you believe that Donovan Mitchell lived up to the hype that he was, uh, that he was getting head into the season? So I'll be frank. I thought Donovan Mitchell was a little overrated. Uh, coming out of Utah, I know he had that really strong bubble season and like everyone was kind of hanging their hats on that. But I'm like, yeah, but at least in terms of recency bias, like he was shredded by Luka Doncic and the Dallas Mavericks, mostly Jalen Brunson. Maybe Jalen Brunson is just like the thorn in Donovan Mitchell's side or something. <laughs> it and feels that way. They have to avoid each other, just go, or at least for his Donovan's sake, they have to avoid each other going forward. But I, I was expecting an improvement i think just in terms of the statistics like yeah the Cavs are going to become a more three-point heavy team because if you add donovan mitchell you're adding seven to ten three-pointers a night and as you said like you weren't going to get the same production from larry marketing because marketing went from the fourth or fifth option in the starting lineup at times to the primary option for most of the time with the jazz and like good on him he finally is starting to look like the player a lot of us thought he was going to be uh coming out of arizona and then his time in chicago and i think just this time in cleveland that he had was a really good like palate cleanser and colin sexton just being healthy and functional as a player is great um it's a shame he struggled with like some hamstring issues and some just leg injuries in general down the stretch of the season and you hope it's like a recurring thing just because he was an iron man for the Cavs before he had that knee injury um but i i thought the price was fair because I also didn't see a path where Abaji was going to get like legitimate minutes in this rotation either just because that's fair you had Isaac Okoro ahead of him you had Karis LeVert ahead of him J.B. Bickerstaff to his fault sometimes is a creature of habit where I think he would rather lean on guys he trusts so that'd be like Lamar Stevens maybe even Dean Wade and sure maybe like Ochai kind of proves jb wrong during practice camp whatever or just like when they give him burn like he's showing them something and they ride with that hot hand because jb will do that he's not dumb like he's a head coach in the nba for a reason so it's interesting to think about like that from the optics standpoint and like how this team would function i agree they would make the postseason just because darius garland had the same same statistical output as he did in year three with donovan mitchell on the floor with him which is staggering to me but for mitchell I was blown away. Like you said, it was exciting just watching him in his regular season exploits. I've never really seen a player maybe since LeBron with an engine that just runs that consistently hot or like a motor, like a dude just like willed the win. And there was a lot of games during the regular season where I'm like, okay, the Cavs of yesteryear would have laid down and gave up. But Donovan Mitchell sometimes just will not let them do that because he's just ferocious on his attack. And I was there for the 71 point game. I talk about this a lot whenever I mention it. Um, I had a whole recap written up for the time when I was with Fear the Sword, and I was just like, well, 
and the Cavs kind of just came out flat against Chicago <laughs> and you know it is what it is just move on to the next one I guess and then by the time Donovan was creeping towards 50 ish or so I started just correcting a few things and just like okay we'll see what happens and then then the uh offensive rebound that was called an illegal offensive rebound after the fact um, happened. I'm just like, all right, I hit control A and just deleted the entire story. And Chris Manning was sitting next to me. I'm just like, I got to rewrite this whole thing. And it's just moments like that that are absolutely staggering. And I think, again, another bad postseason performance is definitely going to be a cloud hanging over Donovan Mitchell going forward. I really empathize with him as a person because – after they lost game five, he's just like, I'm sick and tired of coming up here and saying, you know what, we'll be better next year. And like you could tell he was visibly frustrated um, just with how this postseason went. And he put a lot of that responsibility and burden on his shoulders. And I think as a new face, but one of the more vocal leaders for this team, he said all the right things. And I'm curious to see what we get from Donovan Mitchell next year. Like I, I would expect the same heroics at times during the regular season but does maybe jb if he isn't that that's another thing is like how long is jb's leash as well like if jb's gone or whoever maybe takes jb's place um do they maybe tell donovan to take his foot off the gas a little bit so he has more in the tank come postseason time so he can have some of those heroic moments again do the Cavs again surround them with actual depth because that's that's a big thing in the new york series was cleveland maybe had five and a half depending on how uh, Isaac Okoro was feeling, viable players on the floor <laughs> against New York. And New York just had strength in numbers and out-hustled and out-ran them. And you could tell the Cavs were gassed, and especially Mitchell and Garland, who were facing a ton of defensive pressure from just what Tibbs and um, New York were throwing at them. So I- I'm excited to see where this tandem between Mitchell and Garland is headed. I had my reservations, not about the trade, but just like the fit. I'm like, okay, this is, these are two very ball dominant guards who were successful with the ball in their hands. How are they going to coexist with one another? Are there going to be a lot of growing pains? And there were at times, I don't be, don't get me wrong. There were, but like they were further ahead of schedule than I thought they would be. And it's kind of exciting to think like, yeah, the, despite the postseason flame out, like the Cavs are pretty much in a very good place foundationally. And now it's just like, you got to build upon that success. So yeah, I agree with you. It was one of the more exciting seasons. I think just, you know, especially because like, it's not LeBron, it's a new face. It's a new guy. The Cavs acquire. I think there's a lot of fair questions about him and I don't think he's overrated anymore. Like I, I was, (laughs) I'm a firm, and maybe it's because I watched every single Cavs game this year as a member of the media, but like he really came in the clutch and moments mattered. And like he used that closure that the Cavs kind of needed, especially when things would get tight and maybe that youth and experience would come out. I think all of that's fair to say. I mean, I never thought he was overrated, but I just didn't watch enough Utah games to really formulate a huge that's, opinion. That's my other thing is the jazz are on so late at night. Most nights that I wasn't going to stay up and like, you know, I can't wait to watch the moribund Oklahoma city thunder play the Utah jazz <laughs> at like 10 30 at night in my time. And I'm like, I'm going to go get some sleep, dude. But it's just that bubble season. You're like, yeah, he was really good, but he hasn't done much postseason wise after that. And again, there's like that, just that rearview mirror shot of the Mavericks just ripping him apart. And to be fair, that jazz team hated each other by that point. So it was mm-hmm. just for the best that they broke everything up, but it was not encouraging. If you just look at it from the perspective of that, like, okay, the Cavs may have given up a law for a dude who just does not care about defense. And he's coming to a defensive first team. Do you think that he quieted some of those, uh, some of those 
opinions in regards to the level of defense that he played? Did you see like an elevated level? Of defense I, I, yeah. I think, and he owned up to it too, which was something refreshing, which is Donovan Mitchell is just like how honest he is sometimes. Um, and he's just like, listen, I was bad um, against the Mavericks in the playoffs not too long ago. And I've been bad for most of my career defensively. But to be fair to him, he did know that like I was also pretty much the offensive engine for everything in the jazz at most of the time. So like I was expending so much energy on offense and maybe it's JB thing, but I've been told by a lot of people like at the NBA level or people who have just like been around NBA organizations and coaching staff. So like defense 95% of the time is an effort thing because these guys are the best of the best for the reason they all have freakishly long wingspans. They're big enough dudes that they can handle. And Donovan Mitchell's pretty stout too. So like he can hold himself quite a bit. Like you're not going to ask him to defend fives or fours, but he's not going to look lost if he commits to it. Cause even when he was at Louisville, like he was viewed as like a defense, more of a defensive prospect than an offensive one. But yeah, he silenced a lot of my criticisms or doubts maybe because he and Darius Garland on paper heading into this season did not seem like a great defensive tandem either. And I think Mitchell just tries harder. I think he just plays bigger, if that makes sense. Um, just because, like, even though he is 6'1", 6'2", on a good day, he's still thick. Like, he's still got a long wingspan. He's able to hold his own against maybe taller, lankier two guards at times. And, yeah, he, he provided the effort and I think just at least was passable enough. Like, he's not, like, an all-defensive player that's not what you expect him to be especially because he did so much for you on offense but he at least wasn't a liability in like not overtaxing Evan Bobley and Jared Allen on the interior and maybe having those two is like your back line on defense helps quite a bit too I think Mitchell has that comfort and familiarity just from his time with Rudy Gobert of course but having two of those guys that makes it really easy but yeah he, he at least tried and <laughs> that's something <laughs> and if like you're Quinn Snyder before you get hired by the Hawks you're kicking yourself but it's certainly, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised just to see at least like an effort and a commitment to defense just because that was another pretty like glaring concern between just the backcourt when those when Donovan Mitchell was first acquired by Cleveland. He did certainly seem to buy in. I think you can say that about a number of Cavs this season, including Karis LeVert. I think you mm-hmm. saw a lot of buy-in from these guys uh, who are not noted defenders. But I am curious to hear your thoughts on uh, – on all these New York rumors that we keep continuously hearing thrown about this offseason. Mm-hmm. And I know that, like I said, this is the part of the offseason where it's just dry. So you're any little tidbit of information or anything you see leads to speculation. Um, when you look at his contract, you know, he's got the 2023, 24 mm-hmm. season, 24, 25, and then he has a player option. Are we should in any way right now, do we even need to be worried about that? I so I'm of the mentality that one Cleveland fans freaking out that he is a Mets fan, even though he's never hit it, that he's a Mets fan. Um, (laughs) He uh, when he first came to Cleveland, he talked about how he was going to go to the Guardians game next door after he wrapped up his press conference. And I said and he said, like, oh, I have friends who play for the Guardians. I'm like, oh, who are you friends with? He's like, oh, the guys that uh, they acquired for Lindor. Um and I'm like, oh, okay. And then also for people who maybe don't know this, like Donovan Mitchell's dad's worked for the Mets for mm-hmm. over 20 years at this point. And like, he's a Mets guy at the end of the day. And I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think his comments about the garden, I think if you took those out of context, yeah, sure. You're like, okay, trade him already. He's just over <laughs> it. He wants to be in New York so badly. But 
I don't think people realize just like New York's a basketball town. The Knicks and their fans are crazy enough. The Garden is, despite maybe some of its flaws compared to more modern arenas, like it is the mecca of basketball. Like it's a special place for a lot of players to play. LeBron used to tease Knicks fans all the time when he was with the Cavs that he owned the Garden. So, and he was also the mayor of Toronto at the same time too. So he had a lot of real estate and a lot of fan bases' heads. But it's, I, I'm of the mentality like, hey. And I've heard this from people just behind the scenes. I think Chris Fedor said it as well. Like, there's no like concern about him wanting to be elsewhere. Um, he Donovan has said publicly several times, especially when they played the Knicks in the first round, he like knew it was going to be the narrative, and he kind of squashed it right away, saying like, "Hey, listen, it, everything happens for a reason. I'm in Cleveland now, and I'm happy. I wish the Knicks nothing but the best." You know, it's a very politician statement, but you know, just clear the air, make sure it's clear. And now that he's free to do what he wants, he's probably going to go spend time in New York because that's where his family's at. Um, that's obviously where his dad's at. He's at the Mets games and doing his own thing. But I don't know. I think people are reading too much into it. But let's just say there is smoke to the or fire to the smoke that about that's just this haze that is Donovan Mitchell and the New York Knicks. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned the player option thing as well. Like if the Cavs kind of get the impression that Donovan's heart maybe isn't fully in being with Cleveland and he ultimately does want to go to New York. You have to maybe consider your options then, but that's a problem Mm -hmm. for down the line. You focus on what's in front of you. And if you're Cleveland, it's a two way street. Like, yeah, Donovan Mitchell needs to convince this organization. And I feel like he has for the most part that he was worth all the assets they gave up to acquire him on the inverse of it. And it's that human aspect I talked about where like you can tell he's like just palpably frustrated that he's never really made it far in the postseason. He wants to be playing for championships. He expects to make the conference finals every single year and he hopes his guys feel the same way. And he said he's sick and tired of having these early exit season interviews and things like that. And he just wants to be better. And even like he did his media availability after game five, he had zero commitments left. He came in and sat with the Cleveland media for 25, 30 minutes to talk about how frustrated he was with himself and how disappointed he was. I think there's a clear commitment that he wants to be part of a winning situation, but it's also on the Cavs as well to say like, okay, we do have something here just because of Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland, Evan Mobley, and Jared Allen too. He's a key piece, but I think he's the more tradable of this quote unquote core four you have. Mm -hmm. And you have to say like, okay, we have a guy who does have a bit of a window here. And it's it's funny you had mentioned like guys in the past, um, just like guys having limited windows, um, and figuring out just like how to maximize that opportunity, um, like with Evan Mobley on his rookie scale contract still too. If you're the Cavs, you have to find tangible ways to convince Donovan Mitchell to sign on that dotted line. It's building a winner. Uh, maybe you're doing some moves behind the scenes to kind of scratch his back a little bit, like he's super close with Royce O'Neal still. Like if the Cavs went out and tried to find a trade with Brooklyn and acquire Royce O'Neal, which I think that could be a very distinct possibility this summer. Mm-hmm. And they made Donovan a little happy too. And I do think about this, like if Quinn Snyder didn't take the Atlanta job and Quinn Snyder was available in the ether, I do wonder if the Cavs circle back to the conversation and say, okay, one Quinn Snyder is a really good coach. He's an offensive genius. Defensively, he'll figure out a lot of things for this team. Do we replace JB with Quinn Snyder? One to improve the offense and keep some of the defensive standard and normalcy we have. It's not going to be as elite as it was, but also make this guy we just acquired happy because we gave up a lot for him. But the nice thing is, let's say like his heart's not fully in Cleveland, and this is again an issue for down the line. You can approach the conversation of a trade. He doesn't have a no trade clause. So the Cavs 
technically don't have to do right by him. They could just maximize their opportunities and trade Donovan Mitchell. But if it's clear he doesn't want to spend the remainder of, or at least the majority of his career with the Cavs, like the Cavs could just turn and say like, okay, we have a guy in his mid to late twenties who is still in his prime. He still is, he is one of the best players at his position. Uh, the market is open and the Cavs can recoup a lot of assets for that. And then just build around a, the, the same quote unquote big three they had two years ago. But mm-hmm. that's a conversation for another day. I don't think there's much to it though. He's just, he's a New York kid <laughs> and he likes the Mets and, I think it's okay that he doesn't like live, breathe, and eat um, all Cleveland sports. I mean, my man literally went to the Browns game and with Darius Garland and sat in the dog pound, like literally days after coming to Cleveland, like weeks after coming to Cleveland and not really knowing the town that well. Like, I think he's doing enough to acclimate himself to the culture, but the fact that he's not like a Cleveland diehard right away because he didn't grow up in that environment should mm-hmm. be expected, especially because New York is a big sports town too. I mean, yeah, the the MSG is the Mecca. I mean, you got guys that, uh, you know, clamor over playing there. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to shift gears here for a moment because we sure. have another guy here who is, you know, he's due for a new contract and that is Karis LeVert. Um, had quite the up and down season. In my opinion, he was one of the only guys to actually show up somewhat in the postseason. <laughs> Um, I mean, that's debatable, you know, depending upon how you feel, you know, on any given day. But when you're looking at his contractual worth at this point in time, I think that is going to be heavily weighed against not losing him um, due to the fact that Cleveland doesn't have a ton of assets to work with. I mean, we're mm-hmm. looking at that Mel E, we're looking at the biannual extension, um, some vet minimum contracts. Uh, when you're looking at retaining Karis LeVert, what is the number or right now at this, at this point in time, do you think the Cavs would feel comfortable keeping him at? That's a good question. I would assume it's somewhere in like that 16 to $18 million range. I don't know the years on it. We actually talked about this quite a bit on locked on Cavs and my co-host Chris Manning poised a pretty good point that like the Rockets are expected to be major buyers during the off season. Like they're, hoping to bring back James Harden. Like the, the hypothetical is like Harden, Chris Middleton, Brooke Lopez. Um, and then they use that fourth overall pick either at a point guard or they go use it to facilitate a trade along with all the other young players that they've assembled. Uh, because I don't think Emi Adoka wants to be coaching um, a rebuild slash uh, development project. I think he's kind of there to win, especially because he is a bit of a hard line coach and already had a pretty successful one season with the Celtics before that. So it's interesting to note that because Chris had mentioned to me, he's like, well, what if like, let's just say like the Rockets strike out on Chris Middleton, or maybe they don't get James Harden or, and they like shift their focus to Karis LeVert to say like, okay, you're not Chris Middleton or James Harden, but you accentuate what we have and what we're doing. And, and to your point, I, I, I don't know if I fully agree with him being the only guy who showed up in the postseason. He was at least trying, I think, putting him in the starting lineup is the decision I think really shot the Cavs in the foot the most just because I think he's so effective as the team six man and it's easier to have this team rolling offensively if you let Darius and Donovan get going with the starting group and then you bring in Karras to maybe with one of those guys or just let Karras do his own thing by himself so that he can just find his own shot and rhythm so he's not the fifth option in those scenarios so 
it's just it's interesting for me because Karis LeVert, I was just like, okay, I think he's a trade chip. Um, it's been in the ether for a while that the Cavs were open to, ex- or at least LeVert was open to signing an extension. Kobe Altman and several of his teammates and J.B. Bickerstaff have all said, and even LeVert said like he wants to stay in Cleveland as they were closing out the season just with exit interviews and everything. Um, and going forward, it's just really interesting to see how this evolves because LeVert, didn't make sense on paper just because you have two ball dominant guards in Garland and Mitchell and you had hoped at least Ricky Rubio wasn't going to look as bad as he did when he came back to the floor and I think if Rubio was going to be a little bit more healthy it's a little harder to fit Levert into that equation too because then you have four guys running through the offense who need the ball in their hands to succeed but Levert became super malleable in the second half of the season it really impressed me like you said he stepped up defensively quite a bit and that's just not something he's known for maybe that's a coaching thing or a buy-in thing but either way like that's definitely worth noting I think the fact that he took way less mid-range shots all season long and it was I think a career high for three-pointers attempted for him this year and I think three-point percentage as well like that's really notable that he's he adapted his game at least to what the Cavs needed he was actively looking to get his teammates involved on offense instead of kind of getting tunnel vision just attacking the basket with reckless abandon like I think about that pass he made to Isaac Okoro against the Nets when Okoro hit that game winner like I'm like oh okay like yeah first off great Isaac Okoro made that shot with confidence but more than anything good on Karis LeVert for making the right read in that possession because Brooklyn collapsed on the paint to kind of prevent him from getting a look at the basket and like there are moments where Levert wouldn't do that. And you're like, yeah, he's really been adaptable and flexible for this team. And I think has found his niche and role as like that supercharged six man for them, where he is a bigger two guard who can give you some three at times too. And he at least gives you a solid enough foundation. But again, it just depends on does Cleveland believe that what we saw in the second half of the year from Karis Levert is going to be sustainable going forward? Or is this a guy who's like, okay, this is a contract year for me. I've already approached the coach saying, like, I should come off the bench just to make it easier for us to win because he does care about his teammates. Um, and he isn't – and that, that, that one more thing about that, just the contract year. He wasn't stat chasing, which is also just remarkable to me. I'm like, okay, like, I think this is a dude either knows, one, he's getting an extension, or two, like, doesn't really care about how much money he's going to make because he'd rather just help the team win, which is kind of just surprising because I'm always an advocate of go get that bag if you can. But if you're going to do that, I'm going to be fascinated by it. But – um. Levert to me, I would say just because of how limited they are, they can uh, re-sign him even though they're above the luxury tax threshold just because they obtained his bird rights from Indiana when they acquired him in that trade, uh, not this last season, but the season prior. And uh, to me, it's just how comfortable are the Cavs? I think it's going to be 16 to 18 million just because guys with Levert's size and at least in theory what he can provide you have a pretty set price limit or like a price like basement just because like it's a premium commodity in the NBA and it's just the number of years on the contract or maybe like the terminology like is there a player option is it like a two plus one for the third year being a player option or a team option or is it like one of those Kobe Altman specials where the first two years are guaranteed and the third year is not fully guaranteed where like the Cavs can kind of get out of the deal if they need to um it wouldn't go like the full Dean Wade obviously um like in that scenario where like not a single year is really guaranteed it's just it's at the mercy of the team to decide but we'll, we'll see how it goes i i assume he resigns with the Cavs. i again chris putting that bug in my ear that like the rockets could kind of throw a thorn in cleveland's side if they maybe strike out on chris middleton and they shift their focus to 
a guy who's probably going to be asking for quite a bit less than Middleton this offseason, like that could be something the Cavs have to take into consideration and maybe kind of gives them a little bit of a sense of urgency to make sure they lock up the steal early in the free agency rather than maybe letting Houston sit around and strike because it's just I'm, I'm the Rockets are a wild card because they have all that money and they have made it clear that like we're going to get James Harden and we're going to try and become a legitimate team again. If they do, in fact, somehow lose out on him, you know, he leaves town, you know, whether it be Houston or elsewhere. Is there any possible addition the Cavs can make on the mid-level exception to you, that you think would possibly help shore up his absence? Because you're already you already have a need at the wing, you know, with Kara still coming back. So that's that's tricky because this free agency market is so incredibly thin to begin with, I think either Bobby Marks or Sam Vecini or somebody who is very plugged into just the draft in general, maybe what teams are doing on the financial side of things. Like teams are very aware that uh, this is not a great free agency class, uh, just at least for the wing position, which is what the Cavs have the biggest need at. And I, I wonder if maybe, like maybe Kelly Oubre is a guy they explore with the mid-level exception to replace like what Levert, Levert provides, but it's not like a, one-to-one thing and just like adapting Ubre to the situation and at least Levert has the track record and familiarity of this guy's to make it a little bit easier um I think you'd have to explore trades and just be more adaptable in that point where you're like okay we're gonna really lean into this core four we have and just find ways to accentuate Garland and Mitchell and you look at guys that are three and D players like I had mentioned Royce O'Neal um as like a trade pick candidate for them maybe they look explore kick the tires on Tori and Prince and bring him back who is um, at least a movement shooter. He's been doing quite a bit for the Wolves since he went back there, or he went there rather. And um, it's just, he, I think he could be a viable option too. Um, in terms of his free agency targets, maybe not the full mid level exception. It depends on how you feel about Grant Williams. He's more of a three, four, more of a four. But if you want to throw the full MLE at him and you think that's your guy, because it kind of fits what JB does with playing bigger basketball, maybe you explore that. Or if you want to stay on the cheaper side of things, but maybe have to shell out a little bit more cash than what the vet min is. Like look at a guy like Troy Brown, who is likely not going to be re-signed by the Lakers this offseason. He would make a little bit of sense too. Or I think um, somebody from the athletic noted that like Kyle Kuzma in their eyes, probably because the Wizards are getting ready to blow this thing up, like that was his big payday. Yeah. I don't know if a lot of teams are going to be shelling out like top tier dollar for Kyle Kuzma. And maybe if the Cavs are able to worm their way into that and they can get Kyle Kuzma, like, yeah, you're, you're good there. And I think that's like enough offensive production there to mitigate the loss of Karis LeVert. But again, they could use the MLE to address all their other needs. Let's, let's say like they bring in like Kuzma and Troy Brown Jr. And then they still resign Karis LeVert to like a two, a three year deal with a third year being an option. Like that's a pretty solid off season to start just in, bolstering your wing depth and then you kind of figure out what's going on with Isaac Aguero, Jetty Osmond and just guys on the back end that like flirt with rotation minutes or like in Okoro's case is a part of the rotation but maybe isn't a priority in the rotation going forward and you figure out like can we add more shooting with this or do we need to kind of consolidate our assets and look elsewhere those are all great names I'm sure the Cavs you know Kobe Allman's gonna figure out what to do I'm sure he's got his eyes you know analyzing just about everything across the board to improve mm-hmm. this team after kind of remaining stagnant at the deadline. Um, one of the things that the Cavs are going to have to, you know, in my opinion, get right, you know, they don't, they only have really have one opportunity here is Thursday's draft. Now I know you've been 
covering some prospects recently. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on some if the Cavs do not move up, which is a rumor that's been floated out there right now. If they stay at 49, who are some possible additions the Cavs can make at that 49 spot? So, full disclosure, I think them moving up into the 20 through 30 range makes a lot of sense. Um, I've been kind of doing some fact-checking on it, and I think it, it is something like Cleveland is exploring, ditto for Phoenix and Milwaukee as well, just because this is a pretty wing-heavy draft, and maybe if you're the Cavs, you look at guys that are juniors or seniors that have a pretty solid college pedigree, maybe can give you that 3 and D upside as cheaper cost-controlled depth that you can just plug and play either into your starting lineup or into your bench, and like that makes a ton of sense, especially because as we talked about several times, the, the Cavs are pretty limited financially in terms of just what they can do in free agency, and the market's not that great to begin with. But let's assume that they do keep that 49th overall pick. Let's just say like they don't trade it in a hypothetical trade to get back into the back end of the first round. You start to look at guys that aren't going to be immediate contributors. I think that's going to be the biggest thing. These are guys you're going to sign to one of your two-way spots. Maybe Isaiah Mobley gets a roster spot. And I know the Cavs have three two-ways, but like they should be creative with them. And maybe this guy they take with their second-round pick is somebody they sign to one of those two-way spots. And I, I looked at like Amani Bates from, well, first with Memphis. Now he's with um, Eastern Michigan University and um, wasn't great in college. Like I think has a lot of red flags and concerns, but there's a lot of tantalizing upside to him i think he had a really solid pedigree collegiate or like high in high school but like collegially he just never put it together and the vibe i got from talking to some college coaches and some nba scouts is he kind of gives the vibes of guy who really thought him in high school was as good as he needed to be and he's not like committed to like improving his game or honing his craft but he has the size he's like six eight with like a six nine six ten wingspan he's super three-point happy which is a good thing. And he does have some character and attitude concerns too. And why he transferred from Memphis and then he just decommitted to a lot of programs and up in Eastern Michigan is just like, it's whatever. I'm not going to like read the optics behind it too. But um, if he spends a year with like Mike Garrity or let's say the Cavs plug in a different head coach to that scenario, but they run the same system as the Cavs do the charge do. So you take that guy or like Amani Bates, you could plug him into the G league and maybe just like let him flesh out, learn and grow as a player mature a little bit too, just because the G league is a certainly a different beast than college, especially. Um, and you just let him grow up and mature there. And maybe he becomes a rotation guy for you next season. And then ditto for another guy I was I went through quite a bit, and I've become quite a fan of is uh, Missouri's Kobe Brown, who um, is one of those guys who could be within the range of 49. Either he's going to be drafted in the late second round or be UDFA. And mm-hmm. if the Cavs are able to scoop him up, that'd be great for them because he – at least on paper, kind of gives you those vibes where like he's like a Paul Millsap, but in a small forwards body where like he's a thicker player. He's more of a three four, um, but he provides you passing. He provides you a lot of de- help defensively. Sometimes he's not the best positionally and he's not super athletic, but he does a lot of the little things for you. And he really turned Missouri into like a legitimate team in the SEC, which had a lot of good programs this year. And they're a lot of fun, but like the biggest thing with Brown is, is he took a pretty sizable leap in terms of his three point shooting percentage from his junior year to his senior year. And I watched a lot of those shots. Like 
the mechanics aren't like flawless, but it's not <laughs> broken. Um, but it, like if you get him in on a two way deal, like he has the luxury of spending time with the Cavs on the road, also getting a lot of playing opportunity with the charge. But more than anything, the guys who are on the two-way spots usually practice with the main club um, when the team holds practice and everything, which means like a guy like Kobe Brown, if he did end up with Cleveland on a two-way deal, would be able to work with Cleveland's shooting uh, development staff because like they have a pretty strong track record of guys like Larry Nance developing a three-point shot, Colin Sexton at least stepping behind the three-point line and becoming more comfortable out there. Jetty Osmond wasn't much of a shooter when he was coming. Like, There's not a lot of what we knew about him. But, like Osmond refined his shot with them as well. Um, Isaac Okoro is a bit of a work in progress, but you know, it, it's probably better than what he was at at Auburn at least. And it's interesting to think like those, those are two guys I've been looking at. Um, and for the Cavs, like it's pretty clear just if you like, look at like what's publicly known in terms of their workouts or just like what I've gleaned, like they're looking at a lot of upperclassmen or guys that are maybe a bit more NBA ready, or maybe don't need as much time to develop because they are aware of the fact that like, listen, this free agency class stinks um this draft is super wing heavy uh we could maybe grab a couple guys that at least patch over the issue and then we take whatever assets we have left whether it's Isaac Coro in the last year of his rookie scale deal Jetty Osmond who isn't fully guaranteed this year um the the few remaining second round picks that they have left in the chamber and like go make moves within the margins to just upgrade what you have and because again Kobe Altman made it abundantly clear in the opening moments of his ex interview that there are no real like dramatic or sleeping changes coming to the Cavs. And sure things can change between now and well, he said that back in like <laughs> mid May and now, or even like in August or something, because the Donovan Mitchell trade just hit us all like a ton of bricks. So yeah. like you said, Kobe Allman is a dude who, and the Cavs are a team that are very quiet. They don't really share what they have going on publicly. Maybe some people in the know, but they're kind of told that on anonymity, so at least they're not surprised. But they could make a move, but I, I just don't see them doing anything. And I think, one, they're banking on internal development, but two, they're like, maybe we can grab a couple dudes in the draft, and if we have to develop them with the charge for a little bit, then sign them later, fine. Or if they have to develop the charge the entire season, they make an impact next year, that's fine too. But like they really at least from what Altman shared publicly, are very aware of the fact that they need production at the wing. They need to add three-point shooting just to make life easier for the fact that they play two seven-footers and they need to open up the space and the paint a lot more. Like, Altman was saying all the right things in his exit interview. Now I just want to see him execute that vision as well because, like you said, this is... This is this offseason's a bit of a crossroads. Like the Cavs could go a direction where like, okay, we're gonna run this back and just let our guys develop and kind of keep growing, or they could put their foot down on the gas quite a bit and kind of accelerate this and become more than just a team that is comfortable with making the playoffs and giving their best effort in the first or maybe second round. Indeed. Now, before we close out here, I just wanted to ask, just you know, from a fan perspective, you put your fan hat on. Is there one specific addition that you would just love the Cavs to make this offseason if they're able to pull off one addition what would it be uh well before the Brad Beal trade was or the Brad Beal stuff was in the ether it was probably I, I know people like to joke about Grant Williams I know the Avamik <laughs> is like it's yeah. it's an infamous moment and I'll I laugh at it because I think it's funnier because he owned up to it but it seems like the Celtics don't want to keep grant williams or at least joe mazula doesn't like to play grant williams and i know the celtics are exploring to trade one of their guards i think it'll be a huge mistake if they trade marcus smart but i don't make those decisions um but if the Cavs are able to swoop in and offer grant williams like 
pretty much the majority of their mid-level exception to sign him. Like he makes sense as a guy who is a bigger bodied three, four player who provides you defense. A he brings that bit. toughness too. Brings that toughness. I think the passing helps a lot. I think his shot developing like it did makes him a lot more viable as a player. I was a fan of his coming out of Tennessee. He's a bit of a funky dude. He reminds me of maybe like a Kyle Anderson who's not like super slow and like that's helpful. And like a guy like Kyle Anderson would make sense too. But now that the Brad Beal trade uh, is pretty publicly known, like I would not be surprised if Beal is traded in the next few weeks or so. If I'm Cleveland and the market isn't like red hot for Kyle Kuzma or the Wizards don't throw the bag at him, like I would explore getting Kyle Kuzma. Like I know there is stuff with the fans and how like he talked trash about how Cleveland hasn't done anything without LeBron, and the same can be said for Kyle Kuzma too. But like he provides you that passing. He's a bigger body than Williams, but like he's just a much more reliable three point shooter. And I think just it's interesting because he like wasn't a defensive first player with the Lakers. Um, and then he ends up with the Wizards after the Lakers acquire Russell Westbrook. Um, and he showed that he has at least a commitment to defense and he's very comfortable playing the three or the four. That gives the Cavs a lot of fluidity roster wise. So it's probably Kuzma, then Grant Williams. And then after that, it's a bit of the field. I think you try to be a bit more reasonable and break that mid-level exception up into chunks and you address some of the needs, whether it's like, all right, we're going to grab like two or three, three and D wing guys that aren't going to make like huge impact, but they're going to be giving us enough. And maybe they do trades on the back end as well. And maybe you find a more reliable option instead of Ricky Rubio, if Rubio isn't hundred percent, and maybe you add a little bit of a younger setter. So if Allen or Mobley need a night off, or if unfortunately one of those two were dealing with an injury at the time, especially in Allen's case, cause he got banged up a few times this year. Like you have a guy who, no disrespect, to like Ed Davis or Robin Lopez, but at least has a little bit a more viable trigger. third big, <laughs> a viable third big, and I, that could be Isaiah Mobley. But maybe just in case Mobley's not quite ready for that, you have like a guy who can be that break glass in case of emergency kind of big. But like you want a guy with a little bit more tread in his tires, just so you can maybe have the luxury of resting your guys, and you're not, I don't know, JD sometimes runs some of his guys into the ground, but it is interesting like if you give your guys some time off on the second night of a back-to-back or if there's certain opportunities you can rest your dudes like it does make a difference in the postseason because that's just like one less game where they have to put their body through just every single thing what's the word on khalifa diop you know some of these overseas guys so i asked kobe Altman about this actually during his exit interview um because i said well you guys do have that second round pick would you explore drafting an international prospect he's like yeah i think that is a possibility for us and then I said, and then I followed up. I said, well, you did draft two international guys last year, Luke Travers and Khalifa Jop. And I said, do you have any update on them? Do you expect them to join you guys this year? Uh, and he didn't like say anything for summer league, of course, like that could like Luke or Khalifa could be there for summer league practices and things like that. But he said at this time, the plan is not to have either of them come over this upcoming season. He said between Luke and Khalifa, he said Khalifa is the more NBA ready of the two of them. But he said that, they wouldn't be able to get the luxury of consistent minutes because there's only so many two-way spots they have, and maybe there's other guys that they have circled on their uh, list right now that can maybe make more of an immediate impact. And I think that's just the nature of having guys on those international contracts too. Like you technically own their rights, which is so weird to say, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Um, they can stay with that club that they're with keep developing and growing and i'm sure the Cavs keep tabs on these players from afar it'd be crazy if they didn't but like the nbl's all over the place now it's easier for that like khalifa's job i was surprised when he said job was the more nba ready but 
we'll, we'll see. Like, they could come over this summer. We could see how they're doing, what they've changed. Maybe Luke Travers cut his hair and got rid of the mullet and everything, which would be a, a tragedy, of course. The Billy but, look. Yeah, the, the Stranger look. Things look. Yeah. And then, um, so we'll see. But, yeah, they're not going to be here this year. Because, um, like, yeah, you look, you talk about, like, a younger big who can just be, like, reliable. Like, yeah, Jop kind of fits that mold a little bit. But he is super raw as a player, too. I'm not really well versed in the knowledge of like when you're talking about these international prospects that you have to draft rights to. How does that work if they're already under contract? Say Travers, who didn't he just re up with uh, with an NBL team? How does uh, that yeah, work? He just he actually him and Delhi are teammates now at Melbourne Melbourne United. <laughs> so Delhi went back to Australia. He left Sacramento like really quietly. But so how does that work? It's so it's an interesting process. Um, so I think a lot of these players, like I know Luke for sure has a clause in his contract where like, let's say like the Cavs wanted to approach Luke and say like, all right, we're ready for you to come over to Cleveland and join us. Um, the Cavs would more or less buy out his contract with Melbourne United. So like they would pay the Australian club to release his rights and then he would just sign a standard contract with Cleveland. So it's just a simple clause in the contract. Oh. So it's just like okay. a and they could be nothing pieces too. Like there are guys, the Cavs have maybe had draft rights too, since like the early two thousands or something, or maybe the mid two thousands that they've used in trades in the LeBron years. And it's like a dude who's like in his thirties now and is playing in Eastern Europe. And it's pretty clear he's not coming over, but it's just like a little bit more of like a trade chip. Or like maybe this guy, like, Oh, maybe he will come over at some point. Cause like, some European or international players do come over like they're like Pablo Pizzi like in his yep. early thirties and he was technically a rookie. And I'm like, yeah, it's it's weird to see this grown man be considered like a rookie next to these 18, 19 year olds, but it's scenarios like that. So like you can retain the rights of these players. So if you're like you're able to convince them to come over and play for you, that's great. Like Jetty's a good example of it. Like that's actually a Kobe Altman scout. Like he just studied Jetty closely. They drafted, they traded for the pick, they drafted Jetty. And I think he stayed overseas for another year. And then he came over the following year because the Cavs were like, okay, we think you're ready. And just, you know, we need a little bit more wing depth. And we're kind of curious what these two ways can do. And it, I mean, hey, I know Jetty Osmond has a lot of warts. I know he has a lot of fans, a lot of critics. But, like, in terms of just being, like, a second-round pick, like, he's a at least a viable enough rotation piece in certain nights. that like He's carved out a win. respectable NBA career, if you oh, ask yeah. me. Yeah, for for where he was uh, selected at, but man, I feel like I learned something new every single time I have you on. So thanks, <laughs> uh, thanks oh, yeah, for that. Um, before we close out today, I just wanted to ask: Got anything going on right down Euclid right now? So as you had mentioned, we're doing a lot of draft, or I'm doing a lot of draft coverage right now, and just kind of focusing on some of those second round guys, just guys that. Uh, have kept their name in the draft wheelhouse because dudes are usually better projected second round picks, either go back to college or maybe look at their other options and either go play overseas or something like that. Just because going through the vicious cycle of the G league, trying to get to the NBA is it's pretty tough. And maybe you want to make more money right away, which is understandable. But so I'm looking at that. Um, other than that, just kind of getting ready for summer league and kind of seeing what's going to happen next to the guardians and the Browns, just full coverage of everything. We're, and just kind of full steam ahead, just growing, growing, growing. But thank you for having me. It's always fun talking to you, Mac. Oh, for sure, man. Thanks again for coming on. As we always tell you guys, if you'd like to reach out to us, you can at its Cavalier underscore pod on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and more. If you want to be added to the exclusive It's Cavalier Discord chat, you know what to do. Leave a rating, leave a review, send a screenshot of said review to itscavalier53 at gmail.com, and we'll send you an invite. That said, go Cavs.